when we consider our lives as bhikkhus or our aspiration to be accepted into the sangha as a bhikkhu. It's always useful to consider what a bhikkhu is and what one is committing committing to in undertaking the uh, the bhikkhu training say so, yeah, a bhikkhu is um, <clears throat> often referred to as one who is dependent on arms or literally a beggar So this is a basic reflection that we <coughs> have to bring up over and over again. As because we are dependent on arms. Everything I have and use is a gift from others. We're beggars. This is how we go about our livelihood or make our livelihood. Another way of defining a bhikkhu is the one who follows the brahmacharya and the holy life. which at its core is uh, celibacy and renunciation. So again, not only being a beggar, but renouncing, renouncing the household life. One leaves the home for homelessness, gives up the normal habit of human beings to seek to accumulate wealth, possessions, uh, different experiences in the normal pursuits of uh, lay people. One is giving that up, renouncing that, and renouncing sensuality as a goal as one's main aim in life, sensual pleasure. Seeing that uh, sensual pleasure, pleasure, karma sukha, is still limited, still not the highest happiness that human beings can aspire to, and it's not the goal of the bhikkhu life. You could even say it would be foolish to take on the bhikkhu life if your goal is karma sukha, the pleasures of the senses. 
because it's not designed for that at all then you'll be very frustrated and suffer greatly if that's what your aim is coming into the robes another <clears throat> reflection on the meaning of bhikkhu is one who sees the danger in samsara being samsara being the endless round of birth and death cycle of birth and death when one comes forth to take on the bhikkhu's training then usually one, we assume that that person they have some sense of the limitation, the suffering and even the danger of samsara worldly existence being born as a human being and then the trials and the sufferings of life the ultimate limitation of being subject to birth, old age, sickness and death one is still not free still bound by suffering so one is making a determined move or effort in the direction away from suffering, the suffering of samsara. One has maybe awakened somewhat, even if not yet fully enlightened, fully awakened like the Buddha. One has at least awakened enough to see the danger of not practicing and not training and developing oneself. Samsara in practice, practical terms, means this body and mind that we inhabit, the five khandhas. This is what we know as human beings. This physical form, feelings, memories, thought formations, sense consciousness. This is samsara as it manifests on a daily basis. And there's a danger in, in all of this, these five candors. The pancha upadana kanda, you know, the basis of attachment, identification, and suffering because they are limited in their nature as we start to investigate as a bhikkhu training ourselves we're becoming aware of the dukkha of these candors and the 
limitations of them, that they can't bring us any ultimate lasting peace or happiness in themselves. So a bhikkhu is one who reflects on the danger of the five khandhas, the blind attachment to them and the identification with them, viewing them as a, a self, seeing the self as khandhas. Another way of looking at the bhikkhu is bhikkhu is one in training. The word is sikha, which means learning or education or training. So we are undergoing training. Uh, the training training is in adi sila sikha, in a higher training in sila. And moral restraint, virtue. Adi jitta sikha, the training of the mind, which refers particularly to bhavana, the mental cultivation of the mind, to abandon unwholesome dhammas, kilesa, asawa and develop and perfect wholesome dhammas. And then the training Adi Panya Sikha, the training in wisdom insight, the higher training in wisdom insight, that uh, allows us to uproot and abandon kilesa from the heart, from the jitta. So taking on the robes and the lifestyle of a bhikkhu, then we become one who is in training in sila, samadhi and panya. <coughs> this is our job description, what we're here to do, not what we're taking on willingly, voluntarily. And as bhikkhus, um, there's many practices, duties, responsibilities we take on. Um, we take on the Vinaya. We're bound to follow the Vinaya in all its refinement and expectations of our behavior. We take on as I just mentioned, the training of the jitta in samadhi and panya is a duty, responsibility. We also take on 
take refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha as our guiding ideals and then internalizing these refugees, refuges. So it means learning and contemplating what the Buddha means to us both as an external concept, the historical Buddha, his enlightenment, but also the qualities of the Buddha, the purity, the compassion, the wisdom, taking on the Dhamma. There's a parent here and now, timeless, encouraging investigation, leading inwards to be experienced individually by the wise. taking refuge in the Sangha, the qualities of those who practice well, directly, with integrity, with insight, and so on. One of the practices, the Gamatanas, the Buddha himself said he upheld as a Buddha and as a bhikkhu, but also encouraged bhikkhus to upheld, uphold the Araka Gamatana and the four themes of meditation to to uphold and which will protect and guard the mind of the bhikkhu. That's um, Buddhanusati, Metta Pavana, Asupagamatana, and then uh, Marananusati, recollection of death. As bhikkhus, these are protective meditations which help us to direct our minds towards the training and to maintaining our responsibility as bhikkhus to keep the vinaya, develop the holy life. These are four very essential themes and meditations to develop. As we take on the life of bhikkhu, we are regularly recollecting the Buddha as our teacher and in the qualities of Buddha. Recollecting the potential for enlightenment within our own hearts and minds. The quality of the Buddha, that, that which knows, Buddha, Buddha, that which is awake, that which knows, which is in all minds, all consciousness. But it's uh, a reflection 
and recollection and recollecting the state of awakening, state of knowing. So we have just refining it down to a mantra, Bhutto, as a way of developing mindfulness in daily life, maybe. Recollecting Bhutto as one stands, walks, sits, lying down. The recollection of the awakened state of mind that the Buddha represents. Recollecting the perfection of conduct, understanding of the Buddha. One who was beyond criticism in his conduct, without regret. Established in sila, virtuous conduct, compassionate, mindful, restrained, not harming, exploiting others, and so on. And imperfect in understanding, trained, the, the mind that is trained to the point of penetrating truth, clearing away avicca, delusion, ignorance. Perfected in vicha, knowledge, understanding. This is both meditation and uh, an underlying attitude that we're developing in our daily lives as bhikkhus, in de developing the perfection of our conduct and developing the understanding that will help to free ourselves from suffering. Metta Bhavana, one of the Arakana Gamatanas, meditation that guards, protects us from falling into states of unwholesomeness. You can see, say, when we first come into the robes, Often uh, our metta, gamatana, is not yet particularly strong. When we live in the lay life, we tend to follow desire and likes and preferences. So we have friends and then people that perhaps we consider are not our friends, even enemies. We have those we like, those we don't like. But as a bhikkhu, we're setting the normal preferences of the worldly life aside and developing metta as an attitude, underlying attitude that guides our behavior. It's that choicelessness as far as ourselves and other people go, non-discrimination. You can see when you first come into the monastery, maybe there, these old habits where the mind falls into its likes and dislikes as far as people go, it, it'll still be there. So we have maybe those members of the community that we have metta for easily and then those that we don't. Or those 
lay people, lay supporters and visitors to the monastery. Some we get on with, some we don't. And it might come out in our behavior as we relate to other people with our speech, our actions. They lay people when they come. They might be those that we feel have nothing to do with us, don't want anything to do with them for some reason or other. And then those we're drawn to. But the true metta bhavana is going beyond these more superficial preferences. We use the reflections of a bhikkhu, everything I have and use is a gift from others. So as we reflect like this, then naturally a sense of appreciation of the goodness of all the people who they support us as bhikkhus comes up whether we particularly like them or not, or feel a rapport with them or not. And Metta Bhavana takes us beyond that. So we start to become more sensitive and see the good in all people who come, whatever their background or particular character traits. So one can see how over the years practicing as a bhikkhu then it brings a great evenness to our outlook and the mind. Even though one can recognize different strengths and weaknesses, good points, bad points about other people, one has, but one transcends that with metta, the underlying well-wishing, uh, compassion, appreciation for other people, even animals. Living in the forest, we can recognize that we don't own this forest. There's plenty of animal life here from little bugs, ants and other insects up to snakes and birds and wombats and deer and other things. Many, many animals live here. And as a bhikkhu, one learns just to accept them for what they are and even to be concerned for their welfare, not to want to harm them or exploit them in any way. And similarly for people who come to the monastery, even though some people may be better behaved or ill behaved, one still develops the underlying metta bhavana on a daily basis, both in as a meditation and as an attitude that guides one's behavior. They say when Ajahn Chah used to walk around the monastery at Wapapong, sometimes he would even talk to the ants, I'll see a line of ants, and talk to them like children. He'd say, call them Luk, which means children. He'd say, oh, there's a lot of people walking here. You better move off the path or you might get squashed. As a bhikkhu, one is developing this uh, sense of care for the world around one. Animals and people.
I care for the lay people, everyday lay people come here. Be very easy to fall into the worldly attitude, say if somebody comes late, maybe feel dissatisfied or why did they come late with their food offering maybe and want to tell them off or something. But if one's developing metta, of course, one maybe appreciates whatever difficulties they might have been through to get their food offering here. Or the way people act, you know, some people understand the Vinaya, some don't. Some offer food in the proper way, some don't yet know that. So we have to be like a parent. Bhikkhu is sometimes like a parent looking after a child. Laity are our children. So we have to teach them if they don't know how to offer or how to walk or behave or do things, well, we take the opportunity in our best effort, make our best effort to explain sometimes rather than just feeling angry or averse or rejecting them in their behavior or whatever. And similarly with each other. If we don't understand certain aspects of the practice, then we can help each other, remind each other, point things out, give advice, give support, practice tolerance of each other. This is metabhavana, metagamatana, that helps to guard our practice as bhikkhus guard over our sense of peace. These araka gamatanas, they protect, they have, araka means like a protector or bodyguard or guardian. They protect our peace of mind. So it's in our own interest to develop metta. It's in our own interest to recollect the Buddha as a guiding example and that awakened state of knowing, mindfulness and wisdom. A supagamatana, again, fundamental to the life of a bhikkhu, because as renunciants aiming to transcend sensual desire and attachment for sensuality, in the pleasures of forms, sights, forms, sounds, tastes, smells, tactile sensations, and then ideas and concepts. Going beyond transcending that pleasure-seeking in these objects of the senses, one has to practice renunciation, and one has to balance that tendency to always seek pleasure through the senses by contemplating the asupa, the unattractive, ugly side of these objects. So again, this is a both a meditation and an attitude one is developing of investigating more deeply, you know, looking under the surface. As Lumpo Panyawado says, he's learning to just poke a little bit deeper. 
in terms of the physical body, poking under the skin, not just taking things, looking at things skin deep, but looking under the skin to remind and recognize, remind ourselves and recognize the more unattractive side of this body, our own bodies, the bodies of others. And this is an attitude also, it's not just a meditation on seeing oneself or others as a corpse, but it's also just recognizing that part of life, that aspect of life as in samsara, with the khandhas, that there is the super nature, the unattractive side of all this. So it begins, you know, it doesn't just begin with uh, meditation on the corpse meditation, say. it can be just the way we use our requisites and reflect on them. And when you put your robes on after a bath or in the morning when you got up, when you eat your arms food and use your bowl, when you take medicines for illness or have a drink in the evening, and when you go to your kuti, you enter, leave your kuti, stay in your kuti. These are times to reflect on the asupa, just of being a human being, living in the world, using the basic necessities. As a bhikkhu, we are learning to get by with just the basics, and developing fewness of wishes, not demanding a lot, not being proud and demanding in nature, not expecting a lot, demanding a lot. But even when we use a little, in one set of robes, one bowl, one meal a day, one kuti, even using a little, we can see how having a body living in this world starts to bring up the asupa side of existence. You put a robe on, that robe coming into contact with this body starts to get dirty, greasy, blemished in different ways. After a while it starts to smell. You have to wash it, sun it, air it. You use a kuti, it starts to get dirty. Footprints and dust and grease and different marks. You eat your food, and as you start to eat it, it turns from something pleasant, attractive. As it goes into the body, it becomes unattractive. So basically everything coming into contact with this body, in terms of the requisites we use, becomes unattractive because of this body. And within those requisites that we use, the, the requisites themselves and this body that makes use of them in the material side of our existence. You, know, you can't find a being or a person in there either. These things, Buddha always said, nisato nichiwo sunyo. There's no person or being in your arms bowl just a bowl or in your robe even though we say this is my robe my bowl my kuti there's no real person in any of that no being 
as you look at this body, the Rupa Kanda. Obviously on a conventional level there is a being, there's a person here, you say there's this person, this human being. But you start to contemplate your supagamatana, you're contemplating the nature of this body as how it's made up of the four elements. The food and drink that we consume brings us the earth element, the water element, the fire element. The air we breathe brings us the air element to keep the body going. But as we start to analyze, investigate this body, where is the person, the being in this? Not only is it unattractive, but there's actually no one there anyway. It's empty of a person. There's earth, there's air, there's fire, water. We can separate those elements out. But there's no person, no being there. As we contemplate like this, well, it helps to develop the sense of contentment as a bhikkhu. The difficulties and discomforts of renunciation and living in a simple way, living the holy life, becomes easier when we practice this gamatana. So it guards our peace of mind. As you constantly recollect the impermanence and lack of self in these requisites, in this body, in this kuti, in this monastery and so on, is bringing your mind back to truth, back to reality on a regular basis. Helps you to counter desire in the cause of suffering. Much of our practice as bhikkhus is helping us to recognize desire, see it, see it how it causes its, our suffering and then abandon it. And some of that practice involves actually countering desire, just not giving into it, saying no to it desire. Sometimes it's enough just to see it, let go of it. Sometimes you actually have to put a brake on it and say no. And when you practice a supagamatana on a regular basis, well, this is very much helping to counter desire. And the desire to accumulate, the desire for pleasure, the desire for all the things of the world, which so easily overwhelms the mind, intoxicates the mind. Very much countering that. Ajahn Chah used to say, if you've never, or if you, if you are still following your desires as a bhikkhu, then you haven't even begun practicing yet. As a, Bhikkhu, we can shave our heads, put on the robes, but actually what we're doing with our minds and our attitudes, whether we're really training yet, is another matter. Much of our training is countering, recognizing and countering desire. Sometimes that will be done by the Vinaya. The Vinaya is very good at limiting 
and preventing desire from taking over our behavior. Some of it though has to be done on a more refined level through our meditation and these arakagamatanas are helping to counter desire. Sometimes it will be done by teachers, senior monks. One of their jobs is to help show their students where desire is coming up, how much suffering it brings them, giving them skillful means to abandon their desires. Ajahn Chah used to say, when you want it hot, I give it to you cold. When you want it cold, I give it to you hot. So it can actually sometimes be an act of compassion to frustrate a desire, whether we do it to ourselves through our own wisdom or somebody else does it to, for us within the limits of Vinaya and Dhamma Vinaya training. These Arakagamatanas are doing this as well. This is where we can train ourselves to frustrate an abandoned desire, which is the root cause of all our suffering and this attachment to samsara. The last is uh, Maranutati, <coughs> recollection of death. The most direct and practical reflection on samsara is that. We are bound by death. One who is born must die. All life must come to an end. So you, however many lives you've had, the one thing you can be sure is that in every life you've had, you ended up dead. That's the nature of samsara, is that it's impermanent. Whatever existence we find ourselves in, however high, refined, however much pleasure, whether it's karma sukha of human existence or heavenly realms or the Brahma realms, it's still bound up with death. It's impermanent. This naturally leads on to the recollection of cessation, a cessation of things, cessation of desire and the objects of desire that cause us so much suffering in life. Recollecting death, we're reminding ourselves very directly of the impermanence of it all. Everything must cease. And bringing the mind to just accept and be at peace with that. In the highest happiness, Te Sang Wupa Samo Sukho, as we chant, funeral chanting, your highest happiness is the cessation of conditions. Conditions means, you know, sankaras means this body, this mind, the kendas, or sankara as such. Nibbana, highest happiness is nibbana, highest happiness is the cessation of conditioned phenomena, the realization of that the insight into that and the stillness of mind that comes from that. The recollection of death is bringing us that insight into the 
seen the impermanent nature of this life, this body and mind, and the pleasures of the world and all the things that spin the mind around cause us so much confusion and problems in life. Recollecting death brings one right back to the present moment, the fragility of life, the fragility of these candors, the fragility of samsara. In one breath in, we don't breathe out and we die. We breathe out but don't bring it, breathe in again and we die. Again, every day living in the forest, you can see the fragility of life. You see little animals getting eaten, smaller animals getting eaten, killed by bigger ones. Or sometimes they just die through old age. Their lifespan is much shorter than us as human beings. So we meet with dead wallabies and dead deer and you see dead insects. Yes flies and things that buzz around for a few days and then just drop dead on the floor. Every day we're seeing the impermanence of life. And this is a recollection that Arakagamatana, it's a protector, means it guards our peace because it brings our mind in line with truth when we recollect in this way. It has a liberating effect on the mind. It liberates the mind from its obsession with desire, a desire that keeps creating karma, keeps creating things, seeking things, wanting things. As we recollect death, it naturally leads into insight. At first it's very much a samatha practice just to calm the mind, the agitation of mind, anxieties, worries about the future, all the mental proliferation that we have, it can help to cut through that. But then it turns into insight, meditation, it's just contemplating the cessation of things, the ending of things, bringing the mind to stillness and peace. So these four Arakagamatanas are the guardians, protectors of our peace as bhikkhus and their practices to be developed, cultivated as bhikkhus. You know, they're in line with our aim, our goal as bhikkhus <coughs> to liberate ourselves from samsara, to realize the deathless liberate ourselves from the round of birth and death. <coughs> and in the sense of being the protector, protectors of our peace, you know, they're sources of peace, they're sources of happiness. But it's the Niramisa Sukha, it's the happiness of letting go, abandoning Kalesa, abandoning desire, abandoning the material world. 
but we can see if we, if we understand the importance of the, this, these practices, we can see that they're bringing pleasure. We can take pleasure in them, find joy in them, as, find joy in the bhikkhu life, contentment. You know, at first it can be seem a little bit of a daunting undertaking. Mm. Sounds like just got to give up all sense desire, renounce everything, all pleasure, all comfort. Our worldly conditioning tends to bring up a picture of great suffering that this bhikkhu life is going to bring us great suffering and going to be difficult. And obviously it does involve some difficulty, it's a challenge that we have to rise to, we have to bring up effort, we have to be quite brave and courageous. But at the same time it can bring pleasure, and it's the pleasure of abandoning defilements, the pleasure of awakening to truth, the pleasure of calming the mind down through meditation and developing insight, and the pleasure of leading a virtuous life. You know, the Vinaya isn't just something to give us more pressure and more problems. It's actually something that when practiced well is a vehicle for living in a way without regret. And that's a form of happiness, isn't it? The regret of not doing things which other people will criticize. If one keeps the Vinaya then one is unlikely to get much criticism from the world because one will be naturally living in a harmless way, peaceful way. In developing the gamatanas, one has the freedom from kilesa that comes through samatha vipassana gamatana. So we have the joy, the peace, the happiness of that. So although at first the whole undertaking can seem a little bit daunting or difficult, one can also rest easy that there is plenty of pleasure, happiness to be had in the practice, from the practice. As we go along, it's not even just some sort of distant pleasure, the pleasure of Nibbana, one day way off in the future. You know, there's the joy, the happiness of letting go within the practice, within our daily practice. And as one gains experience in the practice as a bhikkhu, then one appreciates that more. So one gains more confidence in the practice, more faith in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha and in the power, the efficacy of this practice to bring us to the highest happiness, the highest peace. So I'll leave these words with you for your reflection tonight.